Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. We'll be presenting a series of interviews through 2022 with federal executives overseeing programs and meeting challenges with science and technology. Today's discussion is, at NASA, everything starts with research, sponsored by Noblis. Here's your host, Tom Temin. NASA usually presents itself as a kinetic organization. It launches rockets, puts telescopes in space, and runs rovers on Mars. But nearly everything the agency does is undergirded by research. For one view, I spoke with two of its leading researchers, the director of NASA Aeronautics Research Institute at NASA's Ames Research Center, Dr. Paramal Koparkadar, and the Associate Center Director for Research and Technology at Ames, Dr. Jay Bookbinder, whom you hear first. Ames actually has many core competencies. We deal with astrobiology and space physics and astrophysics, aeronautics that PK leads a lot of the efforts in and exploration technologies. So we are one of the centers that does basic research in a lot of different areas. And some of our most exciting things right now are a mission we're going to put on the moon in a couple of years, the Viper mission, which will be a rover to look for water at the South Pole of the Moon. And PK, you know, the word NASA has aeronautics in it, and people tend to only hear space. Just maybe give us an overview of the aeronautic work that is done in NASA, because aero means not in space. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Tom. Uh, The first A in NASA is aeronautics. And in fact, uh, you know, aeronautics is foundation to all the NASA's work predating its conception in 1958. And in aeronautics, we have a number of areas we focus on. First is advanced air vehicles. So basically propulsion, reducing drag, making things go faster in air, which is supersonic and hypersonic and doing advanced materials work that will make things efficient. So really lots of foundational work in the areas to reduce the drag, make things go faster and farther and more efficient, sustainable, you know, such as that. So that's one. Then second area is what we call airspace operations and safety program. In that airspace operations, once we have vehicles, how do you make sure that these vehicles can safely operate at scale in the airspace system so that you know we can make airports more efficient beyond just the vehicles now you're trying to make the whole system more efficient some of them are going possibly supersonic speed some of them are going at very slow speed like drones and everything in between and balloons are is another example right so how do you make sure that the system and scale accommodate all the diversity and density of different types of aircraft and vehicles that will operate in the space and air in a much more efficient and safe manner. So that focuses on the airspace side and operations. The third, we focus on basically integrated systems. So, so integrated aviation systems. Example of that is low boom so we do demonstration activities so low boom demonstrator electric propulsion demonstrator we will be doing subsonic fixed wing type of new advanced demonstrator so lots of demonstrations of these advanced configurations advanced types of vehicles to make sure that those are going to be feasible you know not only we can build them uh, but they can also operate you know in a more, much more 
uh, elegant way and they are going to be practical capabilities. So that's what we do in the demonstration activities. And the last is transformative concepts program where we look at what would the future look like and what kind of transformation we need to see, like advanced air mobility is one example of that, autonomy is example of that. Where would the aviation transform in the future? And Dr. Bookbinder, it's an interesting time to be talking to NASA because there is this influx of commercial space capability that nobody really knows the outer edges of, and NASA is right there at the center absorbing this. So give us a sense of the research that is done in cooperation with NASA, what is done natively with NASA, or maybe you contract out some of it even, and tell us how that whole architecture works of getting the research done. It's a complicated uh, environment for that. NASA is leaning more towards having commercial enterprises engaged with their space activities. There's a commercial lunar payload services approach right now, the CLIPS program, where they're looking to bring in uh, commercial ventures to participate in a public-private partnership uh, with scientific and technical explorations. And in fact, the Next, uh, the Viper rover that I mentioned is actually going to carry instruments that are partly from the CLIPS program. I think this is really interesting because it's a new model for working. Uh, Academic institutions and NASA have always worked together, as have commercial uh, vendors for spacecraft and instrumentation, but now it's being done in a much broader context. I think that we're seeing that with SpaceX, with Blue Origin and others, all of whom have their own objectives and goals, but they also tie into the NASA exploration objectives of going to the moon and then on to Mars. It's wonderful when all of these organizations work together. There are a number of large missions coming up where you look into them and you see not just the work that's being done inside of NASA or contracted out, but actually major elements of it are being produced by commercial and academic groups. Uh, And it's that interaction which is really key to moving things forward. And PK in the aeronautics area, how does the agenda get set? For example, the emergence of drones kind of forced an agenda onto NASA and to the FAA to work cooperatively. And I guess that's really still a work in progress. But beyond that, what sets the agenda for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think some of the agenda comes from our own intuition where the future is headed. For example, in the airspace system and operations program, we are looking at future and saying, what would airspace system look like in 2045? What type of vehicles will be in place? And what kind of densities and what kind of safety and operational challenges we are going to likely to encounter? So we can prepare ourselves. So you can imagine that airspace system needs to be ready when the vehicles are going to be ready. You can't afford to have vehicles are ready, but the system is not ready to, to handle them or incorporate them in the airspace. So that's one way we set up agenda is to look forward and say, what are the future needs that must be met? And where are the gaps between now and future? Working very closely with FAA, by the way, our close partners in this and industry as to what their needs are. So that's one. Second is, so that's the push kind of agenda. And the pull type of agenda is when we have systems that are coming in, industries saying, hey, we really are putting a lot of money in advanced air mobility, electric vertical takeoff and landing type aircraft. We need to make sure that these vehicles will be able to operate. So the some of that 
comes from the pull that we get from industry. And FAA also says that, hey, you know, we could benefit from making things at the airport more efficient. So how do we actually go about bringing more increasing efficiency? The other part is the NASA's vision. So NASA has this vision for sustainable aviation, almost zero or very low impact on the environment, right? So how do we go about building systems, airspace operations, the aircraft itself, that will produce, get to that vision that we all want to see that, you know, it's a, so this is why electric propulsion and sustainable fuel and making sure that the material is lighter and propulsion systems are better, maybe look at hydrogen possibly, look at electric or hybrid electric, things like that. So the multiple ways the agenda is set. So, and so Aeronautics has done a really remarkable job in setting up a strategic implementation plan and then staying with that strategy. And then of course we update the strategic implementation plan as needed, but our headquarters at Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate sets up that strategy and a push towards the future. But it comes from many angles. So in summary, it's the push and the pull and looking out for future and our vision. And looking beyond the FAA model, there are, must be other interagency examples, I imagine, maybe with the armed services and so forth that also have big research programs of their own, and they use the same aeronautical and space development systems. So what are some of the interagency aspects here that tie in with AIMS? From the space side, there's a lot in DOD that are interested in the cis-lunar environment right now and how they can put up satellites that are survivable and maintain intelligence when they need to. They're also interested in cutting-edge technologies, and that's one area that NASA actually focuses on. We develop a lot of those cutting-edge technologies under partnerships with DOD. But it's not just DOD. There's, for example, a lot of work that we do with uh, other government agencies like the Bureau of Land Management, where we've actually been involved in tracking uh, movements of uh, animals. It's a very broad enterprise, other government agencies. Uh, USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, has uh, interactions with NASA where we're looking at how to use, utilize their expertise for lunar exploration. You could pick almost any uh, government agency and find a connection to the work that NASA does or wants to do in the future. PK? So example in the aeronautics side is hypersonics. Obviously, there's a lot of... Um, uh, interest from DOD, so there's a lot of collaboration that happens between NASA and DOD on hypersonics, supersonics types of vehicles, advanced vehicles. Another example is uh, for drone traffic management. So we're building this UTM, unmanned aircraft system traffic management, or uncrewed aircraft system traffic management uh, that requires that we basically have cooperative vehicles operating in the airspace so that they are all in the system and they share intent with each other. But what happens if there is a non-cooperative or unfriendly drone? So this is where we put together a system that allows the DOD and DHS to understand the cooperative vehicles. And when they detect something that is not part of the UTM, then they know that there is a possible threat. So that's an example. We are very actively working with DOD and DHS colleagues on enabling new entrants in a safe and secure manner. So that's uh, another example. The third example is these electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. Now, there is a lot of interest uh, in making sure that these vehicles 
can be used for many applications, including basically carrying the cargo in autonomous manner for hospitals and, and public good entities like wildfire fighting management and such, but also for military activities. So there are some technologies that are used for dual purposes. Another example is um, aerospace and defense supply chain. You know, it's really critical to ensure that we have a strong, resilient supply chain at large that looks at future needs of aerospace and defense industry, you know, whether it's ball bearings or whether it's actuators or APUs or motors, I mean, many, many, many things like that. So understanding the needs for future traffic, future densities, future aircraft quantities, and figuring out where we need to have more manufacturing capacity is a common problem that industry has as well as uh, DOD has. So having that collaboration, making sure that we build a resilient aerospace and defense supply chain is an example where the collaboration is key. Dr. Paramal Koparkadar, Director of NASA Aeronautics Research Institute, and Dr. Jay Bookbinder, Associate Center Director for Research and Technology at NASA Ames Research Center. We'll return with more of the interview after this short break. I'm Tom Temin. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more. Welcome back to our interview with Dr. Paramal Koparkadar, Director of NASA's Aeronautics Research Institute, and Dr. Jake Bookbinder, Associate Center Director for Research and Technology at NASA Ames Research Center. And looking at this from the technological standpoint, you could say that if mankind is to continue to fly, we can always improve on the technologies, but basically the technologies we have now can enable indefinite flight. And if you look at the introduction of the jet 60-some years ago into commercial aviation, they don't look that much different than they did 60 years ago, two engines instead of four. Which brings me to my question about space and the idea of Mars is still a very active idea. What are some of the technology holes that we don't know yet? Dr. Bookbinder. Getting to Mars is going to be super challenging. The uh... It starts with even just the voyage to Mars, uh, making sure that the astronauts are safe on that trip. There are radiation effects that we're just beginning to understand, the galactic cosmic rays and solar events. Uh, the solar flares, which can produce high energy protons, can both damage um, DNA and can affect memory, for example, and cognition. And we're trying to understand how that works in detail and whether there are ways to either prevent it or mitigate it uh, or actually remedy it. And that's just getting to Mars. And then once you're at Mars, there are whole issues of uh, survivability, both of the mechanisms, uh, the equipment, and the people. It gets very cold. It's a low-density atmosphere, about 1% of the Earth's atmospheric density. So it's just hard to um, extract oxygen that they would need to survive. Um, there are perchlorates in the, in the uh, terrain, which are... Um, unpleasant to deal with. So there's a lot of technology aspects in that regard, chemistry of, of the surface. And then there's also the question of how are you going to go about building habitations on Mars 
or research centers, which is also true on the moon. How are you going to construct them in space manufacturing, for example, uh, or extraction of materials from the surfaces? All that technology still needs to be developed. It's very challenging because it's not the same as it is on the Earth. Plus, there's also the sustainment of human life just getting there. Exactly. I mean, there's whole issues of just recycling, uh, whether it's waste products, uh, growing food to get there. How does food grow in a low-gravity environment? That's all brand-new research. And in fact, Ames is uh, very uh, tied into the initial efforts to understand biology beyond low Earth orbit. That's a that's a new area of exploration, and we're leading that. We'll be launching a satellite in a few months that actually takes yeast out uh, beyond the uh, lower low Earth orbit out to the lunar type orbits, where they'll see how low gravity and radiation affects the growth of yeast. And yeast sound simple, but they are very much uh, cognates for human cells. PK, I wanted to return to something you mentioned earlier in passing, and that is supersonic flight, the low boom and so forth. I've noticed an interest resurgence of the idea of supersonic. I think there's planes under construction that ostensibly yeah. even airline orders for them. What are some of the technologies there that can make this economically feasible, because it never was in the Concorde days, and also something that people can live with so that you could fly coast to coast in the absence of sonic booms and so forth. What are some of the frontiers here? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Uh, so really the propulsion systems to reduce and the shape and the aerodynamics of that whole aircraft, you know, designing um, basically the structure and the way it's shaped and the propulsion are the key to making sure that we have a very small footprint and all of the so it's a combination of multiple things now will it be uh as affordable as a bus probably not in the beginning you know certainly uh it, it really is meant for those who have very high value for time in the beginning but the the reality is where or the expectation is over a period of time those things will get routine and then the cost will go down as the production rates go up and it becomes a mainstream just like the jet aircraft you know right in the beginning also of course even cars are for luxury and rich people and so on and so forth so yeah we had to start somewhere and we had to show the promise and then it starts to become commoditized over a period of time. I mean, that's the hope. Obviously, the Concord uh, model, there are lessons about that, that it didn't work the economics on all the routes. There were a few routes that were, you know, I believe were economically viable. But uh, there would be, I think, now that things have changed in terms of the economic perspective and the people uh, have a different value for their money, at least some people, so I think there is a promise that uh, we get to experiment. I mean, I kind of see this in an interesting way. I see this as an interesting way to check out new technology for those who can afford it. So with the early adopters, and if we are successful, then that sets the pathway for common people. But there's no likelihood that they will have the cigar cart going through the new supersonic planes that they had in the old Concorde days, huh? Probably not. <laughs> Tell us about the facilities at Ames. Are there wind tunnels? Are there jet engine mounts and so forth? Tell us about some of the facilities that the research actually gets done on. PK? So we, yeah, so certainly Ames 
was the second center at NASA after NASA Langley and Ames has the largest wind tunnel. So you can have a 747 uh, full size aircraft basically can be tested there. We have a couple of wind tunnels. So that's sort of something that's unique. The other thing that's unique is vertical motion simulator, which is a seven story up and down simulator. It also goes sideways where you can do a flight test of different types of configurations originally started for handling qualities. A lot of astronauts got trained. That's another really proud NASA capability. Third one is the future flight central. So you can actually mimic the entire uh, airport tower and the operations at the airport in a reconfigurable way. So you test your algorithms for scheduling, departures, arrivals, integration of surface movement and such, and showcase how the operations can be improved. Um, and it's really elegant uh, capability to show that. The fourth is the airspace or air traffic management type of operations, mm -hmm. where you can actually show an integrated air ground flights and many of them at the same time and show how the entire air traffic control system would work in presence of nominal conditions at high densities in presence of disturbances like large scale weather deviations or GPS outages and things like that. Those can be used for any types of vehicles, you know, uh, current vehicles as well as new incoming vehicles like drones and urban air mobility type of operations, advanced air mobility type of operations commercial space launches. We also have space traffic management capability to study and set requirements for how would the space traffic management look like, you know. Let me just add to PKs that we also have a wind tunnel, which is specially designed for Mars atmosphere. So it simulates the Martian environment. You can test aircraft and rotorcraft like helicopters and their blades and such in this Mars wind tunnel. That's a, a nice little uh, unique capability. Dr. Jay Bookbinder, Associate Center Director for Research and Technology at NASA Ames Research Center, and Dr. Paramal Koparkadar, Director of NASA Aeronautics Research Institute. For more on this interview or to share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Federal Insights. I'm Tom Tamman. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Implementing an AI Plan, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network. 